0: Welcome to the Broken Brain podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docu-series. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your overall brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is a good friend of mine and also my own personal dentist and the dentist for many of my own friends, and has also treated Dr. Hyman too, uh, Dr. Rosita Rashton. Dr. Rashton earned her undergraduate degree at University of California in Los Angeles with high honors in neuroscience and went on to attend the University of Southern California completing her degree in Doctorate of Dental Surgery. Striving for excellence, she maintained the Dean's List throughout her curriculum and graduated top 5% of her class. She believes that every individual deserves the highest quality in dental care. She places much effort in bringing state-of-the-art dentistry in her Santa Monica practice, utilizing modern health as a platform in helping patients understand the relationship between their mouth and their overall health. Dr. Roshan focuses on holistic dentistry, the philosophy recognizing the teeth and the associated structures as part of the whole body, not a separate system. Because it's an important relationship, she offers a plethora of healthy treatment options, stressing the use of non-toxic materials, focusing on the impact that toxins and hidden bacteria can have on our cumulative health. Dr. Roshan, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Let me start by saying hello to you, Drew, and your wonderful listeners out there who are tuning in. And once again, thank you for this opportunity and invitation for allowing me to talk about what I love the most, which is biological dentistry and uh, practicing dentistry the safe way, the healthy way. Um, I'm really hoping by the end of this talk, I will um, extend some knowledge and information to your listeners out there and help them in terms of being able to make better educated decisions about their oral health in general and finding the dentist that would match their needs. Yeah. So thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So the first question that everybody wants to know on the podcast is, how clean are my teeth? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that.
1: He's a great patient. <laughs> a good example to follow.
0: Uh, you know, every time I come and see you, and I've referred so many people to you, and you've taken such great care of them, thank you so much. Um, everybody always leaves with more knowledge on things that, uh, you know, They, a lot of my friends, as you know, they're very into health. They know a lot about health, but they come and see you and they learn even more, and that's why I'm really excited to get into this interview and hear more about it. Let's start off with the basics, because a lot of people new to this podcast are just beginning to understand how important the mouth is and how so many chronic diseases actually begin in the mouth. Let's talk about the difference of different dentistries. You practice what we've called holistic dentistry, and I think I even found you originally by searching biological dentist, which is how I've originally found your practice. Can you tell us the, the important differences between your practice and a conventional family dentistry that many of us you know, grew up going, going to?
1: Yes, uh, and that's an excellent question because oftentimes patients can get confused who does what. And later on in the game when they choose their dentist, they always tell themselves, or oh, that's one of the complaints that I hear, I wish I would have known in the past, you know? Uh, so there are different types of dentistries out there. So as you said, conventional or standard dentistry, which is uh, still being taught in majority of the schools, especially in the United States, and uh, that's the mainstream. Then the second is a group of dentists that refer to themselves as mercury-free dentists. Which, what does that mean? That's, that means the dentist or the dental facility does not believe in mercury fillings or amalgam fillings or silver fillings. I'm using all that terminology because basically they all refer to the same things. Metal filling that includes amalgam or mercury. So they don't believe in placing amalgam fillings in patient's mouth. So those, pa- those group of dentists are referred to as mercury-free dentists. Then there is another group that is referred to as mercury-safe dentists which basically means not only they're mercury-free and they don't believe in amalgam, they also are trained uh, and they have a strict protocol to follow that if a patient comes into their practice and they already have an existing mercury fillings in their mouth, how would they go about replacing it or treating it without potentially exposing that patient to more mercury? What is the safe way of removing it? Which is super
0: fascinating, and it's one of the reasons that I came to you is that I had existing mercury fillings, and we're gonna talk a little about, more about this, but you took me through a very specific protocol of the safe way to remove it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, which which I'm hoping major of the people go that route because we're gonna talk about it later on, what mercury, what kind of impact it can have in our overall health and not just oral cavity. Then comes the third part, which I like to brag about it, that's how I practice, so biological dentistry or biocompatible dentistry or holistic dentistry which means that not only we are mercury free, not only we are mercury safe, we also believe, we have the philosophy that we believe that the oral cavity or our mouth is not a separate entity from the rest of our body, which very much means that any bacteria in the mouth, any products that you use in the mouth, any toxins in the mouth, can contribute to your overall health, okay? So uh, the body is in one unit, Oral cavity is not separate. So uh, biocompatible dentists basically choose their materials very wisely. Uh, What goes in our mouth can can have a positive or a negative impact on our overall health. So that's the role of a biocompatible dentist.
0: It's so funny because you're right that we have thought of dentistry as this kind of completely separate thing, and yet it's the thing that leads into your body. Right? It's so crazy that we would think of it as separate, yet it's so much, very much the beginning place of even things entering into our body. So it's going to have a major impact, the decisions that we choose and the materials that we choose. It, it's not separate.
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, sometimes when I chat with my uh, physician friends and I ask them because I'll be I'm always surprised how limited their knowledge is about the oral cavity and they tell me well Rosie you know when we go to medical school we spend at most one hour in oral cavity and that's it and that's very puzzling to me because I personally think dentistry could be one, should be one branch of medicine you know because everything is linked together it's as so you're going to establish that by the end of this
0: talk. You know, your background is uh, Persian. I come from an Indian background. There's a lot of my family members and and your family members. Your own sister is a dentist, too. We have a lot of people in our family that are uh, uh, dentists. And, um, you know, there's one topic that uh, always seems to be the topic that can start a little fight between people in this space. If I talk to one of my family members about uh, holistic dentistry, and that's uh, silver fillings. So I want to start off the topic on that because a lot of people are interested in it. Can you give our listeners the lowdown on what silver fillings actually are and why it's important to understand their impact on our health?
1: Sure, so in general, silver fillings, metal fillings, or mercury fillings, again, all of those terms are used interchangeably. It's the same thing. Uh, What it means is amalgam fillings that is used commonly and unfortunately so still in United States and many countries, uh, especially in third world countries, uh, it, it's a mixture of mercury, it's an alloy, so it's a mixture of mercury, silver, copper, tin, and zinc. But what most people don't know about it, the main component of a silver filling is actually mercury. It goes anywhere between 45 to 55 percent of elemental mercury. Imagine that. 45 to 55 percent of elemental mercury is inside each silver filling that is placed potentially wow. in anyone's mouth. Now. Right now, majority of us at least have heard of the topic that mercury is toxic, right? People watch their diet, how much tuna fish to consume has a higher mercury content, you know, occupational hazards, and so forth. But people still, there is American Dental Association that still claims that mercury fillings is safe, even though it has the highest mercury, uh, almost 50%. And it's a known
0: biohazard. If you had that mercury in a in a product or in something else that we had exposure to, you would have to treat it with a biohazard risk.
1: Absolutely. But somehow all of a sudden
0: when it's in our teeth, it doesn't. It's safe. It's crazy.
1: Somehow it belongs to your mouth, but it doesn't belong in trash can. This is the the interesting part, right? (laughs) So I'm actually going to give away my age a little bit here, Drew. So (laughs) back in the days, the thermometers that used to be used to check your body temperature, I used to have this liquid mercury uh, mm-hmm. You're too young to remember, No, of I course. think I know a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they used to use that. Why? Because mercury is the only metal that is available in room temperature in liquid form. And it transfers the temperature super quick. So in a matter of less than a minute, you would know uh, uh, the temperature of your body, right? Well, fortunately so, those thermometers are no longer in the market, they took it away. And why is that? So just in case you drop it and you break it, they didn't want you to get exposed to the mercury. Mm-hmm. So think about it. The mercury that was in the thermometer is dangerous, but the 50% mercury, which is the same thing in amalgam fillings in people's mouths, somehow they're still p- claiming, people claiming or organizations claiming that it's actually safe, yeah. which I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what the silver fillings or mercury fillings is made out of. Now, since I just talked to you about thermometer, what I wanna talk to you about is what happens to that mercury in the silver fillings, okay? So being a metal that transfers the temperature uh, super quick like for instance, you can not have a hot coffee in a metal cup, burns your hands right away because metal transfers the temperature very quickly, right? right? So imagine a silver filling in someone's mouth, which the main component of it is mercury, 50%. You drink something hot a hot tea, hot coffee, soup, whatever that is, the change of temperature causes that mercury vapor to get released from your silver filling in your mouth.
0: Slowly, slowly, slowly there's a reduction
1: Absolutely. on a
0: regular basis. That's on a
1: regular basis. Getting because, exposed. Yes, so it will never, that silver filling, regardless of how long it's been in your mouth, never will be depleted of the mercury entirely. It won't. So you you will always have small exposures over time. Now, the more number of fillings you have in your mouth, and the larger the size, guess what? The more exposure, exactly. Or uh, some of the pathways that mercury gets released, as I told you, change of temperature in the mouth. When you clench, when you grind, the friction causes the mercury vapor to get released. When you go to a dental office and you have your teeth cleaned and polished nicely, when they do the polishing, And again, the rubbing action causes the mercury to get released. It's just sort of
0: like living life normally chips away little by little by little.
1: Absolutely. At this mercury. Exactly. And then, so what happens to that mercury vapor as it gets released in your oral cavity? You either ingest it and you swallow it, or your nose being right next to your mouth, you inhale it. Mm -hmm. So you are inhaling this mercury or ingesting this mercury and introducing it to your body. Now, guess what happens next? So... Now, the mercury is in your body, and unfortunately, our body doesn't have the ability to just go to restroom and dump it. Yeah. So, we start absorbing it. So, mercury gets absorbed by the body, especially our main organs, such as brain, kidney, liver, GI. So, uh, as you intake all this mercury slowly over the period of time, you're introducing heavy metals in your main organs.
0: Which are... Right? you know, heavy metals, they're persistent organic pollutants, pops and so they are absorbed by all the fat cells, which right. is in our organs, the breast tissue, other stuff inside of our body. Just like you said, it's not just going to be excreted out through our urine.
1: Exactly. So so now, what happens next? Now, I want to put this very simply. I don't want to get into the, so much of a science of it, but our body has a great ability to be able to separate self cell versus a foreign cell right so you know what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you right there's a coding system so when mercury molecules go attached to any cells and by the way it's very random they can they can go bond to any cell whether it's going to be neurons whether it's going to be uh, muscles or it's going to go on kidney so when they go attached now the body recognizes that cell as no longer a self-cell, as a foreign cell, and it starts a cascade of inflammatory response to attack and try to invade. In other words, they try to kill that cell. Now try to imagine if the mercury is attaching to the nerves and neurons or brain, then that person over time is going to start showing neurological disorders. Right. If the mercury is on the muscle, you get muscular issues. If a mercury is attaching to a organ that produces hormone, that person is going to have hormonal imbalance. That's why there are so many uh, diseases, systemic issues associated with mercury. It's not one or two, and it varies with each individual, basically depending on where that mercury lands. So as of now, we know over 250 uh, diseases, autoimmune diseases, or different systemic issues that is associated with high level of mercury for that reason that i just mentioned
0: yeah you know there's this book that came out years ago i believe it's called mercury the great mimicker that mercury exposure can pretend and can act like so many different diseases and functional medicine doctors like dr hyman himself who had mercury exposure primarily through another big source of mercury separate from uh, fillings is coal like coal ash and he had a lot of mercury exposure living in Beijing where the coal ash and the chlorine factories and everything is in the city I- itself and started developing all these neurological disorders but was completely misdiagnosed not knowing that it was mercury that was one of the things that was causing this. So, super fascinating. So, I think it's, it's this is a perfect example of something that you were saying in the beginning which is this distinction that your oral health, your mouth, the health of your teeth. Is related to every other part of your body. Absolutely,
1: and this is a prime example. What material is used in your mouth can totally enhance your health or, as a matter of fact, uh, put you at risk, and mercury is being one of them.
0: You know, we had a patient in our clinic uh, at the Ultra Wellness Center who was a mother who, you know, would always say that after. Uh, she had kids, you know, She just her energy levels had dropped tremendously. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why that could be, not getting sleep, you know, dietary changes, other stuff. But as we continued, and I was sitting in because she was one of my friends, and I had brought her there, so she asked me to sit in in some of the appointments. They continued to dig, dig, and dig, and dig. And one of the things that they found out is that in between her first and second child, she had her fillings removed but they didn't remove them the way that you remove them. So let's talk about that for just a second, because a lot right. of people are like, oh, okay, so mercury feelings are bad, let's get them removed. Absolutely. But, but that's, not always, that's not the answer.
1: Very true. In fact, I do have some patients that come to the office and say, well, doc, I, I know mercury is really bad, but I also heard these are so toxic that it's best to leave it alone rather than touch it, because then you get exposed to massive amount of mercury. Well, you know, that statement, there is actually some truth to that. I partially agree, and I, I want to elaborate on that. If someone is not practicing safe dentistry, which I'm going to walk you through the protocol so people get, become more knowledgeable about this issue, if they want to remove mercury fillings under just standard dentistry, I would say do not touch it. Because why? I told you mercury gets released from silver fillings, mercury fillings in small increments on a daily basis, but very small. But unfortunately, the massive exposure that people get is during dental visit when a dentist starts drilling in their mouth. When you start cutting into mercury filling, you're exposing the patient, the staff, or the uh, doctor to massive amount of vapor and powder. So it's extremely important to go to the right person who is educated and is a believer that mercury is toxic and, and my patient is vulnerable and I have to protect them. So what is that protocol? So if you go to a biological dentist, I highly recommend you remove your mercury fillings. Even though it's slowly leaking or uh, getting released, over time, everything adds up. After 20 years, that's substantial amount of mercury fillings. 20
0: years of exposure. It's kind of like even in Flint, Michigan and these other cities where they're seeing even, you know, they're, they're now saying there's no safe level of lead in the water. Whereas before, they were like, okay, it's fine, it's fine a little bit here and there, but now doctors are really coming around and saying, look, this long-term exposure adds up. So the same thing is there in mercury.
1: Right. So what is the protocol? What is it that we do in order to make sure that the patient is protected? Well, every one of us, I like to think at one point, has been to a dental office. We know know the routine. The dentist starts working in your mouth, there is water everywhere, right? Unfortunately, sometimes you gag, sometimes you swallow accidentally a little bit of water. Your mouth is full of water, you're breathing to your nose. So you can only imagine if I'm sitting in front of you and tell you this stuff is toxic, how do I make sure you don't accidentally swallow the water? How do I make sure when you're breathing, you're not breathing the mercury vapor that possibly is getting, you know, is escaping your mouth? So during that period when we are touching a silver filling, we place what we call a dam inside a patient's mouth that dam isolates a tongue, the cheek, the only thing exposed is the tooth that we are working on that has the mercury filling. And that, that dam literally serves as a dam, as a barrier, and mercury cannot pass through it. So in other words, you don't get to swallow. As we are trying to cut away the mercury filling, there is a dam place that mercury doesn't get to pass it, so therefore you cannot, it, it doesn't access your throat. And at the very same time, as we're cutting away the silver filling, the mercury fillings, the assistant has high suction right next to the tooth to suction all the water and all the vapor that is coming out of it. But in order to still be 100% safe, just in case a little bit of it is released in the air and you're not inhaling it, you're being put under oxygen. So the patient has an oxygen mask on, a little oxygen hood on their nose. So during that time process, they are breathing just 100% oxygen in. And then they have safety goggles, safety eyewear. So those three factors should jump at anybody. If you're having your mercury removed and a dentist is not putting an oxygen on your nose, you don't have a dam inside your mouth and you don't have a protective uh, eyewear, right away you know that's not a healthy way to practice. So, uh, you know?
0: Yeah. And and going back to that example of that patient that I was talking about, after they dig and they did find some food sensitivities and other things that were were there for her, they found out that she had had her uh, uh, four or five mercury amalgam fillings removed without this process that you're talking about, just a doctor drilling and then replacing, and she breathed, breathed in all this mercury vapor, then we ran... Uh, at our clinic, what's called a a challenge test, right? Which is how the doctors, uh, for those not familiar, is how uh, functional medicine doctors and other doctors would see um, the true level of mercury in the body. Because blood mercury is not a good example because your mercury, again, as Dr. Roshan was saying, gets absorbed into your organs organs and other places, fat tissue. So her mercury came back and it was, you know, Top 10% of what we had seen in terms of how off the charts it was. And it's like, wow, could this be part of the reason why she's felt she's had chronic fatigue-like symptoms since she um, had had her second child and removed these mercury uh, amalgam fillings. So, So... so now we're understanding a little bit more about the, the challenges and the nuances of mercury. Yes, it's, it's bad, but we have, if we're going to take it out, we have to do it the correct way. Right, the and, way. and then what about replacing it? Because sometimes we might need a filling or we might need to replace a filling. What is biological dentistry and what's the best practice that, that you know of when it comes to replacing those fillings and the materials that are used?
1: Sure. Again, uh, as we talked about it, what biological dentists believe is what material we use in our mouth can have a huge impact on our overall health. And in today's uh, world, there's a huge dental material that you can choose from. So if you believe in um, choosing a material that has a lowest allergic reaction, lowest toxicity, is better for your overall health. And that's what a biological dentist does. Uh, And I'm gonna use some examples. So uh, the most biocompatible material right now out there in the market would be porcelain, which is a type of a glass is made in the laboratory. However, what dictates it varies with each person, it's not one formula fits all. When a cavity or a filling is very small, then we don't need to use porcelain which is a lot costly and hey, you want to make dentistry kind of affordable to all, right? So uh, then you, you may want to choose what we call resin or composite. However, let me, let me tell you that white filling, resin or composite which is all basically the same thing is used uh, interchangeably, same terminology. There is a huge range to choose from. One has very high level of BPA, one has either very low BPA or almost no BPA. So a biological dentist chooses even the white filling uh, wisely in terms of finding one that doesn't have fluoride has a very low BPA rather than just grabbing whatever is out there, which, as I said, there's a huge range of composite materials out there. So to patient, white filling may, f- may be just, oh, it's just a white filling. But what they don't know is one has very high BPA, one has very low BPA.
0: Yeah, as like the awareness around mercury continues to grow. Even dentists who don't fully believe in that mercury is bad and damaging might use, like, Oh we do green dentistry we don't use mercury but within that if they're not educated they may not know the, all the options that are available absolutely
1: to and and, and uh, perhaps later on today we talk about fluoride a little bit some of the white fillings or bonding material or composites have fluoride in them like mm-hmm. as a biological dentist I'm completely against that again we will hopefully get to that and we talk a little bit about it uh, uh, but some dentists that uh, don't place mercury fillings for cosmetic reasons, they may say, oh, okay, I'm oh, I'm also mercury free. I don't believe in that. But what they don't know is why even among white fillings, biological dentists don't believe in fluoride. They don't use that. They don't believe in high BPA. We don't believe in acrylic. It's very toxic. I'm baffled how sometimes patients come in uh, and they have no idea. Acrylic is the polymer and monomer is what is being used literally in nail salons for fake nails. Uh, imagine that in your mouth, you know, like some of the night guards are uh, um, uh, fabricated by acrylic. So there's tons of dental material out there. And honestly, uh, I don't, I'm not trying to make a dentist out of. Uh, your listeners and it's going to be very hard for them to be 100% educated about every dental material, hence why it's so important to go to a dentist who already does the research for you and yeah. is a believer and believes in that philosophy that good materials in the long run pays us a good price and protects our health.
0: You know before we continue and there's so much here uh, to talk about and unpack, we'll get to fluoride and a few other things, I, I want to come back to your personal story a little bit, right? What, what was your aha moment or series of moments that brought you into this world and the awareness because you know the challenge is often you know dentists that are out there are just practicing traditional dentistry they're just not aware right they don't mean any ill will they don't they're not trying to do things the wrong way when it comes to mercury they're just repeating what they know in school and if school tells them one thing they're gonna believe it because they don't have any other sources of information but where did this curiosity come from from you to begin to start questioning this approach that you were taught about in, uh, in school?
1: You know, very good questions, because as you said yourself, in today's dental schools, unfortunately, still, no one talks about holistic dentistry or biocompatible dentistry, or they don't even tell you there is a group of dentists out there who are a believer of that. So when I graduated from dental school, I thought, hey, you know, I... I learned so much. I did well. I'm one of the best dentists. I'm going to practice great dentistry. And I did for a good few years until a friend of mine who was a physician came to me and uh, asked me, hey, Rosie, you know, uh, I have a patient who has these symptoms, chronic fatigue, this and that. Western medicine basically cannot find what's wrong, but she has a high level of mercury. So I've been told through some lectures that there is mercury in silver fillings and this and that. So I'm like, yeah, there is. Uh, And of course, me just graduated after a few years. I'm like, but from what I know, it's safe. I mean, we place them, we remove them. This is what we told. But I always, even up until now, I have a very open attitude. I try to keep myself open minded just because I don't know something that doesn't mean it doesn't exist or I'm always right. My curiosity is always open. What if? I mean, let me go find out for myself. So I said, let me just go look this up. And I went online and started looking up what is holistic dentistry or what is biocompatible dentistry. And next thing I know, there are a couple of organizations and the curious me started taking some courses. And after I got familiar and I got exposed to that knowledge, I almost felt honestly guilty to practice the way I was practicing and I was ignorant. I had no idea. This is what I was taught. Like the majority of the people, that's why as a biocompatible dentist, I never blame my fellow colleagues because this is what we were taught and this is what is still being taught. So, for the rest of us that are still kind of curious and open to the opportunity, we go on our own, on our own educate ourselves and learn and find out about it, but the rest are still kind of kept in dark, right? So. What happened, uh, I came back to my friend and I said, I guess there is some truth in that. And I, follow, I followed up her story. And sure enough, after the, the patient removed her mercury feeling safely and went through a process of alternative medicine chelation, removed the mercury, then from their body, their symptoms disappeared. Wow. So as I practiced more and more, I started to see miracles that I'm like, my God. This is true. This is not a joke, you know? Uh, so I, compl- I could never go back and practice the same
0: way. That's incredible. So. <laughs> um, congratulations to that open-mindedness. I think <laughs> at the end of the day, that's really what we all wish for and hope for for everybody when it comes to you know every aspect of life is just that we stay curious and open to maybe what we were told isn't the right way to right. go about Right, or maybe it.
1: there is a better way out
0: there. Why not yeah. try to explore? Speaking of better ways, you know, holistic dentistry, biological dentistry, uh, it's not just about fillings and other components. There's other core procedures that for years now, decades, we've been using in dentistry that are accepted as normal but actually have severe implications on our long-term health. And one of those is, is root canals. So give us the lowdown. I mean... You know, for a lot of our listeners, I always like to start with the basics to remind people why would a root canal be used in traditional dentistry? And then what is the challenge with, you know, root canals and how they're being used today?
1: Absolutely. So, this is one of the biggest controversial topics in dentistry right now. So, let me tell you this by the end of today's talk, a lot of people would love me and a lot of people would hate me. But I'm really (laughs) hoping less of the second one, right? (laughs) So what is root canal? Let me just talk about uh, what does that mean to have a root canal treatment done. So each tooth in our body has different layers. So we have three layers. We have the enamel, which is the outer layer. Then we have the second layer, which is dentin. Then we have what we call pulp, which inside pulp uh, you have all the nerves and the blood vessels that bring nutrients to the tooth. That's how we keep the tooth alive, right? So when a patient is told that you need a root canal, uh, when there is a trauma to the tooth, possibly fracturing a tooth or a blow to the face or maybe a pathogen, bacterial cavity reaching the nerve and causing a damage, then a conventional dentist or what we were taught in the past was, okay, let's save your tooth and let's not remove it. However, since the 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 nerve is damaged and is causing you pain and discomfort, we go inside the canal or that pulp chamber that I just talked about. Let's remove the nerve and the blood supply to the tooth. When there is no nerve inside the tooth, there is no more pain. There is no nerve, the the messaging. It's a dead tooth. Exactly, completely dead. It's inside your mouth. You can still bite. You can chew because you're keeping the tooth. But there is no nerve or blood supply to the tooth right? So what a brilliant idea, right? Mm -hmm. Except what we don't know is there is a central canal inside each tooth. However, from those central canals are tons of accessory canals that, that are microscopic, which means we cannot see them with naked eye. So when a dentist tries to clean out this necrotic tissue, this dead nerve inside the canal, they only have access to the central canal, which is the big canal. The rest of it we cannot clean, because we can't see it, we don't have access to it. So therefore, they try to remove this necrotic tissue from the central canal, close to your, uh, close their eyes to the accessory canals, which you have still little nerves hanging out, and then seal the canal with some material. Well. As you know, anything dead in the body, any necrotic tissue left in the body harbors bacteria and creates infection eventually, right? So what happens to these nerves inside the accessory canals is full of bacteria and pathogen that they dump toxins into our system.
0: Because it's not just our system that communicates with our teeth. It can even go the other way. It can kind of, it's like a canal that can go both both ways. So you're saying that the bacteria that starts developing the teeth is now making its way back into our body.
1: Absolutely. So, and then not always the patient is symptomatic. So, they may not have pain, they may not have any discomfort, but this tooth is no longer it's not a sterile tooth. In fact, when dentist does root canal, you get a signature from the patient that there is always a possibility of the root canal not working and failing. But they don't tell you why. Mm. Because there are accessory canals that we don't get to clean, we don't get to see, we don't get to really guarantee that we removed all the necrotic tissue from the tooth. Mm. So, uh, so what they found out, this is the interesting part, about more than a century ago, in 1910, there was a doctor named Dr. Weston Price in Mayo Clinic, and he did lots of studies and research and published a lot of papers and pissed many dentists off, I can tell you that, because he came and he proved that there is a lot of toxicity to root canals, okay? And he was able, by culturing the bacteria and transferring it to animals, to realize that, wait a second, there are tons of pathogens, once you do a root canal, there are tons of pathogens that are associated with root, root canals. Almost 82 strains of anaerobic bacteria uh, when you have root canals done.
0: Yeah, we have a full microbiome in our mouth. Right. You know, just like we have a microbiome in our gut, a lot of people don't know that there's our, our mouth, you know, there's like a nasal and, micro, and and mouth microbiome.
1: Right. So there are good bacteria mm. and there are pathogens, that, right. but unfortunately the bacteria that result as a failed root canal or as a necrotic tissue inside the canals are extremely detrimental to our health. Mm. They fall into, uh, there are five strains of them that off of that five strains especially, they contribute to heart disease. Uh, they actually have four of them, they affect heart, three of them affect nerves, two of them affect kidney, two of them affect, affect brain, and one uh, sinus cavities. So these pathogens that are left behind around the root canal teeth are constantly dumping toxins and those toxins attacks those main organ, as I told you. Yeah. So it is pretty damaging. Now. I know it's a touchy subject because as a dentist, we've been told we want to act like a hero, save all the tooth. But really, it's like saving one tooth is important or or damaging your overall health, right? Um, so that's the deal about root canals. Now, sometimes, though, patients say, okay, you may think there are pathogens and there are anaerobic bacteria. Why not give antibiotic? Antibiotic will probably clear it up, right? The problem is, when you remove the blood supply to the tooth, how are you gonna get antibiotic to the inside of the tooth? There is
0: no mm. more blood supply. Is it tooth? There is no vehicle so, to take it in.
1: Absolutely. So there's And also, no there's at-
0: other problems with antibiotics. Antibiotic They're gonna kill as well. all good bacteria inside it. the mouth.
1: You said it. So, uh, so this root canal tooth is always gonna harbor those pathogens, which unfortunately you cannot clear it up. And I hate to say, so what now? It's like okay, if if you're told you need a root canal, what you should do. Right. That's probably, is that going to be your next question? That's
0: the next question. So somebody's, well, you know, there's two questions. And if you've already had one, what can you do? But let's start with somebody who's in their dentist, you know, office. And they're being told that they need a root canal. Uh, What are the other options? Good.
1: You know what? Number one, I want to mention one thing. Um, I have a feeling a lot of people are being overdiagnosed, number one. Okay, mm. as, a, as a doctor or a dentist who doesn't believe in root canals so much, when I ask my colleagues, uh, you know, how many root canals, the ones that are not biological dentists, how many root canals you do every day, their answer usually is on average, oh, at least minimum two or three. Two or three a day, and here I am practicing full-time in my office, and I don't diagnose root canal two or three a month, so I'm thinking to myself, am I just lucky that I'm getting all the patients that are super healthy and they don't need a root canal, or are we over-diagnosing people? Uh, I have a feeling we are over-diagnosing, meaning people are not giving the body a fair chance to heal its own, okay? So I really hope that one lesson that your audience takes from this today's talk is, if you're diagnosed for a root canal and you're about to do something completely irreversible do yourself a favor get a second opinion from a biological dentist hmm. i get it all the time people come and you know they're getting a second opinions i was told i need a root canal what do you think of this you'll be amazed how many times you can actually reverse that and the nerve is not damaged it's just symptomatic but you need to find out the source why is the tooth is hurting, why is it in pain? There are other avenues to try to help the tooth to heal itself rather than jumping the gun and doing a root canal. It's a little
0: controversial, but it's kind of like uh, this question on my side, is it also too that it's become so normalized that it's, you know, root canals are more expensive procedures so practices like to do them? Is there any element of that?
1: You know, I I, I hate, since, since they're my colleagues, I like to remain a little bit ignorant and say no, uh, but unfortunately, in every field not every person may practice ethically part of it could part of it could be that i get what you're saying but at the same time Part of it is, if you kill the nerve right away, the pain goes away. Yeah, they're so just you, trying to help then, the patient. Then you're like, oh, you, you look like a hero. Oh, you have pain? Let's do a root canal. Pain will be gone tomorrow, right? Mm. Rather than wait and try to uh, find a way to make the situation better. Let's try this. If this didn't work, let's try that, which is a bit more time consuming, more number of sessions, mm. Okay, and then takes patience. So. So I like to think if we give them a benefit of the doubt and everyone is practicing ethically, perhaps it's because they're not being patients or they don't know other avenues that are out there that could help the tooth heal itself and they're just taking the last result which means kills them.
0: Yeah, every practitioner at the end of the day wants to help their patient. Right. And if the patient's complaining with the pain and the root canal is the source, if you don't know an alternative, you're going to go and help the patient the best way that you know how.
1: Right. I mean, the way I tell my patients, they're like, okay, your arm is hurting. Let's amputate it. No longer have an arm and it's not going to hurt anymore. (laughs) But no, seriously, in a sense, it's it's kind of like that, right? But what do you do? You go through a series of physical therapy. You're going to try to find why is it that your arm is hurting. It's going to take some time, but eventually, hopefully you get good results, right? Same with the tooth. I, I have seen in my own practice that a lot of treatments that we do, whether it's ozone or with the desensitizer or patient maybe was just clenched, it was misdiagnosed, we really reversed the root canal. That's why I don't see so many patients that require root canal. So it's not that I'm getting lucky, it's just that as a biological dentist, I'm trying to find the source of the pain rather than just killing the nerve and say, okay, now there's no more nerve to tell you pain. The source is there, I just eliminated the nerve parts, right?
0: And if the patient has, you know, th- their job and homework is really one, to find a biological dentist in the area, but number two, to have patients to explore because what's causing that pain could be multiple things and you got to find the right treatment that would potentially work for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about the other person. You know, Dr. Hyman has talked about how, you know, in a podcast with Mind, Body, Green about his uh, mold exposure and how he also feels that he, this root canal that he's had for a really long time is part of the reasons why he got severely sick about a year, a year ago. You know, my mom has had a root, root canal. There's all these people that have had root canals. For if you've been somebody who's already had one, what are the options now, knowing that it could be causing ongoing damage and toxicity to your body?
1: All right. so knowing what we know now, is the only option available would be to eliminate the source. I hate to tell you. So the root canal is done. You cannot reverse it. And by now we know if we, do go, we go around the tooth that has root canal and take away a little bit of a piece of bone around it, we find a patho- pathogen. There are plenty of papers written about it. Uh, There's no way of denying that. But, so the root canal is done. What's now? Well, the only way to eliminate it would be to removing the tooth and finding other uh, avenues to replace that missing tooth now. So unfortunately, so the, you the have tooth to physically re- would be removed, re- removed and so then
0: you would put in—I uh, don't know what the proper term is in dentistry—but some sort of uh, cap or, or so
1: implant, for instance. Mm-hmm. So when we remove the tooth, we have to really make sure that when the tooth is removed, all the periodontal ligaments, which basically are the ligaments that attach the tooth to the bone, are also cleaned out mm-hmm. because th- those get contaminated. Uh, because of the root canal. So once the site is nice and sterile, the patient goes through the healing. Okay. And then now they have a missing tooth, of course. Right. So I I don't like to say don't replace a missing tooth because what happens is when there is no stress in the bone, the bone goes through atrophy. Mm. Kind of same like muscles. If you don't uh, exercise, if you don't move around, your muscle goes through atrophy. Right. So what happens in our jaw bone, the reason we don't lose bone so much, unless someone has a poor oral hygiene and has a bacteria, then that's one way because of periodontal d- disease to lose bone. Otherwise, as you bite and you chew, because teeth are embedded in the bone, they constantly create stress on the bone and you don't lose bone, right? So now you take away a tooth, That section of the jaw that no longer has tooth, if you don't replace it by something, is no longer being stimulated. So it's gonna start going through atrophy. You're gonna start losing bone. Mm. So I'm a big advocate of if you lost your tooth, try to replace it because I don't want us to lose that bone. I don't want us to go through atrophy. How do we replace it? There are different methods. Right now, the success rate of implant is very high. And what I mean by implant, is a surgical procedure that you place uh, like a post think of it like a nice size post inside the bone you don't see it and then bone wraps around it grows around it becomes nice and solid and it serves as a root of the tooth okay same concept there is a post inside the bone now bone is getting stimulated as you bite and chew and a crown goes on it okay however again coming back every category i'm going to say as a biological dentist there are different materials that the uh, implants can be made out of so what people don't know there are if you want to stay away from metals there is a metal free zirconium implants that is available it's been practiced very commonly in europe it started in europe it's been there for so many years now it's, it's starting more and more in U.S. It fa- finally found its way to U.S. and it's been FDA approved. So it's nice and solid and it's made entirely out of zirconium so there is no metal in it. Mm. But if you want to also use the second one would be a fully titanium. Again, there are so many different brands of implant that one has to be careful so not every metal implant is fully titanium. Some of them are just titanium coated, which means they just spray a little bit of titanium, which is a compatible metal, what orthopedic surgeons use for hip replacements or titanium screw or mesh for the body. is the only metal that is for now accepted to be used in the body, mm-hmm. right? So for dental implant, at least if you want to use titanium, it has to be 100% titanium and no other alloys mixed in it so that's my belief system and that's Either primarily that first, because
0: those other alloys can, can be reactive to the body
1: absolutely you yeah. got it it's a non-precious metal so uh, a non-precious metal are not compatible and it does create a reaction to our body mm. you know the tissue can always remain kind of inflamed your body is talking to you that i'm not liking this material and the gum usually remains inflamed around that area
0: yeah Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> Once you start unpacking it all, you know, the teeth, which look like such a simple thing and these solutions and thank right. God for modern dentistry. But also there's these key components that we, we can question and look at the right approach. You know, there's, uh, you know, taking, go, going back to a history lesson, you know, you mentioned um, uh, Dr. Weston Price and, you know, his work is very well known in like the community of like paleo and other places, because when he went to study the teeth of other People living in other countries. One of the things that he found is that people that were eating their original diets also had a better structure in their teeth. And we did a podcast with my friend uh, Dr. Stephen Lin a little bit about that and talking about the jaw structure and our and our teeth and um, how those things all play uh, into each other. Um, you know, so it's it's there's there's a little bit of this idea sometimes that we have that oh when we were uncivilized, we all had really messed up teeth <laughs> and then when modern dentistry came it fixed everything. The The challenge, it seems, the beauty of it was, yes, if we lived out in nature, we were in the village or living our traditional life, if you hurt your tooth somehow or chipped it and you didn't have any access to dentistry, then you were messed up because you have infections or other, th- other things. But it's there are things that in our modern world have caused our teeth to become worse and not just sugar. One of them would be our diet. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Diet has a main component. All this processed food that we consume, definitely a high level of sugar is it's, uh, one of the reasons that people have a lot of cavities. And nowadays. As you said, it like we are more educated. Back in the days, our ancestors, you had tooth issues. The first thing they would do, they would pull it, right? Right. So in a way, we're like, oh my god, uh, that's so archaic. But in a yeah. way, maybe it was good because then the amalgam was not introduced to their mouth, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's... it's how you look at it.
0: It's so true. All right, moving on from one controversial topic to the next, we're gonna get into another big, big, big topic, which is. Fluoride. Um, most people out there uh, that are aware of anything health-related know a, a little thing or two about fluoride. But you know, I don't know if everybody still knows. But the, the American Dental Association still promotes fluoride as a way to protect the teeth. And and there's so many concerns about fluoride being. A neurotoxin and a lot of research that's out there what's your opinion as a biological dentist on the topic of fluoride
1: okay great so fluoride is very reactive so and yes it is known to be a neurotoxin absolutely and what people don't know fluoride is not actually essential for any developmental growth or human growth and development so you don't need fluoride in other words right so they started introducing fluoride into water and into dental products thinking that fluoride supposedly prevents cavities and makes teeth stronger. Okay, But in reality, that's actually a myth. There is no real research or data or any article proving that that the fluoride actually prevents cavity. Let me tell you what happens with fluoride. So our enamel and our bone, one of the uh, uh, minerals that we have, and it's very important, is calcium, right? We've always grew up, drink lots of milk if you can. Calcium is very important, right, for teeth and bone. So what fluoride does, it replaces the calcium in the bone and in the teeth, in the enamel. So. And instead of calcium, it depletes the calcium and it it, uh, position itself in the hydroxyapatite. So now uh, calcium comes out, in another words, and fluoride goes in. Think of it this way. That's why we call it very reactive. The problem with that is when you have so much fluoride in the tooth or in the bone, you're actually more prone to fracture. It makes the bone and the teeth more brittle. So there is no real scientific proof that says fluoride actually makes the teeth stronger. In my practice, when I see, especially teenagers or young adults, when they come in and they have all these what we call fluorosis, which is yellow and brown and uh, patches on the teeth because of too much intake of the fluoride, they're actually more prone to cavities because the enamel becomes more porous. So I completely disagree with that ideology that is fluoride is supposed to make the teeth stronger because it's not. It actually weakens the tooth. It weakens the bone. In 2006, there is a report by NRC, which is the National Research Council of National Academy of the Science, that they evaluated the danger of the fluoride, and what they were concerned about was a potential association between the fluoride intake and osteosarcoma, which is the cancer of the bone, or bone fracture, or musculoskeletal defects, or reproductive and de- developmental effects. So. Uh, There's all all this downside and potential risk of consuming fluoride, right? Um, American Dental Association still believes that fluoride helps you with sensitivity. Okay, maybe I can give them that. It definitely does not restrict your tint against cavities, But there are other products out there that can be used and not be a neurotoxin and still helps with the sensitivity. So I personally do not find any reason why we should give fluoride supplements or introduce fluoride into our diet whatsoever, especially for children that are going through developmental growth or for adults that have diabetes or kidney failure or thyroid issues because they cannot metabolize the fluoride. Uh, well, we are actually putting them at at risk of systemic
0: issues with fluoride and, and in certain European countries, I believe they 've just removed it like as the recommendation
1: yeah absolutely for... and then fortunately what 's happening in our in our water system is becoming less and less, but it 's still there. It's so still my there. advice is what we don 't know, there are different sources that we are getting exposed to fluoride, one is in our water system, mm-hmm. so as much as possible i 'm hoping most of us will consume. Bottled water that doesn't have or fluoride. Or have a really
0: good reverse osmosis filter system. at home.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And then the second source would be, unfortunately, dental products. We have fluoride in mouth rings, We have fluoride in toothpaste. You Whitening. got it in yes. You got it in dental materials that patients don't know. As again, I I'll, I talked about it briefly earlier in white fillings, dental cement, in bondings. They all have fluoride unless you're a biological dentist and you remove them uh, from those products. And there is products in pepticides. There is products in any product that is stain-resistant and is waterproof, such as Teflon cookware. Mm -hmm. So if you can, at least the ones that you can control... Uh, such as dental products and such as water, eliminate fluoride, definitely uh, uh, from your daily intake. And I'm 100% against, especially I think children are very vulnerable. I'm completely against getting fluoride treatment for children, uh, especially since they can ingest it. So um, I know there are a lot of dental offices that they do fluoride treatment. But I'm really hoping that they they would stop that because not only I don't see any benefit to it, more than anything I do see harm. By the event of fluorosis, it causes that permanent staining, which is not even cosmetic. uh, And it doesn't go away unless you uh, start doing veneers and bondings on teeth that used to be 100%
0: healthy. So much of the science is out there and so much of this data is known. And yet we still keep on doing things the old way as a society and sometimes people come in to me and say okay what you're saying is great but if it were true wouldn't everybody start practicing that way or doing it that way and i think that one of the things that people forget about is that in most industries especially in healthcare it often can take 15 years 20 years before something becomes the best practice even while the data is mounting 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 um, any other thoughts as to why you know dentistry and fluoride is still being promoted in use even though there's still so much data that's out there
1: I think part of it also has to do with marketing you know. Uh, you go and try to pick a toothpaste, there's so many of them. This one has a fluoride and the more options you give to people, uh, the better it is. So part of it, I think, has to do with the companies and coming up with marketing. I love the advertising when I hear, use this mouth rinse, it's, it's going to kill 99.9% of the bacteria. I'm like, well, isn't that great? If, if, if this is in fact true why would anyone get a an ever cavity? Just rinse, you know, rinse your mouth with that mouth rinse and it's 99.9% you'll be
0: bacteria-free. Right. But so, you know. <laughs> yeah, the people, the marketing is so embedded and people start looking for things. Um, by the way, that's actually just really quickly since you mentioned it, let's touch on it. We've been talking about how important the the microbiome is inside of the mouth. So mouthwashes, right? right. You know, so there's a few different reasons that people use mouthwashes. I think when I was starting, you know, when I was growing up and, uh, you know, I'm 36 now, but when I was in, in, like, I would say in, like, the early 90s, I really saw a boom of mouthwash, Listerine, all this other stuff. And you see the commercials, they talk about gingivitis, and they'd also just talk about, like, this is, how you, this is part of, just like you brush, to keep your mouth clean, mouthwash is another way to keep your mouth clean. And then some people feel like they have bad breath, which is probably caused from other things, which we can talk about in a second. But what's your opinion on mouthwash, and are there better mouthwashes if somebody wants to use a mouthwash?
1: Right, mouthwash is definitely an adjunct. Again, I don't believe by just using the mouthwash, you just eliminate all the bacteria in your mouth. I think it's way overrated. Uh, I am a big advocate of technique of brushing and flossing, that's number one for me. So if someone comes and even talks to me about toothpaste, what's the best toothpaste out there? Honestly, even if you don't use toothpaste, it's perfectly fine with me, as long as you're mechanically removing the plaque and bacteria from your mouth, which means the correct way of brushing and flossing. Now, you wanna add a toothpaste, then make sure it's fluoride-free. We talked about that. Make sure it's fluoride-free, I'm fine with that. You wanna add a mouth rinse, that's fantastic. However, it's not going to replace your brushing and flossing. Make sure it's alcohol free. Again, make sure it doesn't have fluoride. I'm even perfectly fine in my practice. A lot of times, patients that have uh, gum disease and we treat them, I tell them use a sea salt, which has iodine. That's the best mouthwash. It's the best mouthwash. That's the original mouthwash. You know, mouthwash. forget Crest.
0: <laughs> or forget even sometimes there's these xylitol mouthwashes right. and there's a lot of concern about xylitol and how it can impact our gut bacteria and you always end up swallowing a little bit not to mention your microbiome so i love that you said that it's just like if you want a mouthwash you know take a little bit of like slightly warm salt water and exactly and, and do rinse that. your
1: mouth and that's it it's it's just the best natural remedy so sea salt especially since it has iodine it has a wonderful effect on gum disease so i'm an advocate of that so,
0: um, one of the things that you told me, which I, you know, was not doing correctly, <laughs> is that I was using a very hard brush and um, I was brushing too hard. So, I had a lot of gum recession in my mouth. And I've been, the more I've learned about it, what I've, and I started telling friends, and they were like, I have this too. So, basically, I'm right handed. So, on the left side of my face, if I was pointing to my face, because you brush in sort of this upward motion, my uh, left gum under my teeth was highly recessed because you just naturally default to brushing that side more. And if you brush really hard, that can then expose nerves and other things like that. So just what's proper, what's proper couple tips for people on the brushing side?
1: So, So exactly what you said people think, oh, the, the harder you scrape, the harder you brush, you're taking away uh, all the plaque and uh, the build up the better it is. On the contrary, when you take away the enamel, which is the hardest layer of the tooth, now you're gonna produce, because you're getting closer to the nerve or the second layer of the tooth is getting exposed, now your teeth are becoming more sensitive to temperature
0: okay and that's what i was noticing i was noticing a very extreme sensitivity exactly to temperature. and what,
1: what's so sad is enamel doesn't grow back so what's gone is gone so number one would be the correct tools which be either soft or ultra soft toothbrush and one of the first comments i always get but i don't know if it's going to clean so well. believe me it does okay <laughs> <laughs> so soft toothbrush is a way to go now the way you're supposed to brush your teeth is in circular motion you want to gently touch the gum but you don't want to go back and forth in a horizontal movement Movement. so think cir- circular and think away from the gum you're brushing away from the gum so for bottom teeth you're brushing upward so you go circular and your last movement will go up away from the gum for top teeth you're doing circular motion and again, again uh, away from the gum which would be downward now sometimes it's like, doc, this is too much information, are you serious, this is automatic for me, I don't even think about how I'm brushing, then switch to a correct or good electrical toothbrush. That's not a bad investment. Perhaps. Yeah,
0: you gave me one, I think it was called Rotodent. Yeah. <laughs> which is great and I still yeah. use it and I replace it and it's it's been a game changer for how I brush.
1: Right, because it has a measured force and then that's the thing, when you use an electrical toothbrush, please do not apply any more extra force. It's doing the job for you. You don't need to press so hard, right? We are trying to eliminate being too aggressive. So just hold the toothbrush. If you're using the electrical toothbrush, one, two at a time, and let it do its job. So um, there are a few of them that I like. Rotodon is one. Soniker is one.
0: Uh, There's a new one out called Quip from this company. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it brushes for two minutes automatically, and then it turns off.
1: Most of them do have that automatic uh, timer, though.
0: Okay, got they it. They do. Yeah, Most of some them new do startup from so again. Okay. Yeah, it's not a new thing. Uh, they're making moves somehow. <laughs> uh, their name keeps on coming up. Um, so there's a few other things that also import, uh, impact um, our mouth and, our, and keeping healthy teeth. One of them is vitamins and minerals, and not everybody would normally think about that. So what would be some important vitamins and minerals for us to consume to promote healthy teeth? Um, and, and, and if we're lacking them, sometimes could also promote tooth decay.
1: Right. So to start, one of the main one that I believe majority of the people already know is calcium. So you want to make sure that you do have enough calcium in your body. Hence why fluoride is actually not good for you because it, it replaces the calcium, as I said, in your bone and your teeth. So you want to make sure you have enough calcium which prevents tooth decay. You, that's one. Number two would be a vitamin D. Vitamin D actually helps us with the absorption of calcium. So if you're taking calcium, let's say tablets or supplements, but your vitamin D is very low in your body, then you get rid of the calcium, you don't absorb it. So your vitamin D has to be also in normal level. Then would be vitamin C, which lack of vitamin C or a vitamin C deficiency actually contributes to bleeding gum or gingivitis. Iron is also very important for people that don't have enough iron in their body. Uh, They can cause uh, inflammation of the tongue, and they can have sore spots in their mouth. So iron is another key factor, and uh, last but not least, vitamin B, specifically vitamin B12, vitamin B3, and vitamin B2. If you are deficient in those categories, then you're more prone to canker sores, okay? Oh, another thing that I forgot to mention. I did mention vitamin D. People that have vitamin D deficiency, not only they don't absorb calcium very well, they may even have uh, like a burning tongue sensation or a metallic taste. So these are good to know. So sometimes people say, you know what, I don't know in my mouth, my tongue feels burning. Check your vitamin D. Or if you feel like you have a metallic taste, but you don't have any mercury feeling, silver feelings in your mouth, that metallic taste is because of the lack of vitamin D. Yeah. So, but those are the vitamins and the minerals that you wanna make sure that you have enough of it in your body to help with to help your oral health.
0: Incredible, and in the show notes, we'll put a link to an article that Dr. Hyman has written about vitamin D because one of the challenges is most doctors, their range of what's healthy vitamin D is lower than what the data shows in science so we want to make sure we have it at the optimal level not in the reference range for the general population because most people are deficient in vitamin D right so you have doctors that come back and say okay 25 30 is fine it's on the lower end but really we want it to be much higher so check out the show notes we'll link to an article on vitamin D
1: And one more thing about vitamin D that you said that it actually plays a very key role if you ever need an implant placement uh, one of the reasons that implants fail is on the individuals that have low level of vitamin D. Somehow there is a very big connection with implant failure and vitamin D deficiency. And that's something else that I wanted to add on.
0: The more we learn, the more we realize how connected it all is.
1: Get out and get some sun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, there's a there's a little topic that's inside of here that I wanted to just talk about. Breastfeeding at night, right? Breastfeeding at night, and does breast milk being left in the mouth promote tooth decay. Um, yeah. Is this a topic that people come and, and ask you about?
1: I guess more and more so. And as a matter of fact, I'm glad you're asking because honestly, back in the days, a lot of people on average would stop breastfeeding around when the, the baby would start teething, right? Mm-hmm. So around age six, six months or eight months, people would stop breastfeeding. That was in the past. Well, now a lot of people are a big advocate that they want to breastfeed longer, okay? Uh, we're not here to talk about that. So but, but what happens is after age of six months and eight months, the baby starts having teeth, right? So if you're breastfeeding and uh, you're not brushing, depending on the age again, if you're not brushing the, uh, your baby's mouth or you're not at the very least rinsing it with water, you're leaving the, bre- the milk residue on the teeth which will lead to cavity. So do yourself a favor. I'm not here to tell you when to stop breastfeeding or not. I mean, God bless you. Some people carry on until after age of three even. But keep in mind that your baby will have full set of the baby dentition at age two. So when a baby has reached two years old, they have their full set of dentition. Okay, so... At whatever age it is that you're breastfeeding, after six months or eight months, before the kid goes to sleep, before your baby goes to sleep, make sure either you're helping them brush or at least rinse their mouth. Give them some water to drink before they go to sleep. So don't let them, don't let the milk residue stay on the teeth because it will lead to cavities.
0: There's another topic that's become very popular in the last little while as the Coconut oil movement has increased, and that's the idea of oil pulling. Oil pulling, I, you know, from the Indian tradition. I know a lot of people say that oil pulling kind of, you know, was very popular in India and that sort of stuff. I don't remember people doing it uh, growing up, but I didn't. I wasn't born in India, but you know, family members keep traditions alive. What's your thoughts? You know, I think the mechanism and idea is that oil pulling and that oil and swishing around in our mouth for about two to five minutes is another way to remove toxins. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Is it marketing and hype?
1: You know, it's a great detoxing. It's interesting. One of the articles I had read, it said for 20 minutes and do that three times a day. Wow! So if you think about it, 20 minutes of swishing with oil three times a day, that's an hour, more power to you if you can switch with that's oil hard. one hour a day. <laughs> yeah. I know I can't. But uh, you just have to be careful what you read online. There was an article saying, you know what, such such and such actress never brushes her teeth again ever since she's been doing oil pulling. And I wanted to bang my head on the wall. I'm like, are you serious? It's a great adjunct. I'm not against oil pulling. I think it is a great detoxing. However, the length of the time you're doing it makes a difference. And most of us don't tend to do it long enough, mm. at least from what I know. Yeah, here so, I am.
0: I just said two to three, two to five minutes. <laughs> the, the article that
1: I read said 20 minutes, which I'm like, It's probably oh. 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, that's tricky, and how often you do it, it's, I, I guess you're supposed to do it a few times a day. So... You know, it doesn't hurt. is an adjunct, but it definitely do- does not substitute brushing and flossing. Still, brushing and flossing correctly for me is number one. Pool, uh, oil pulling is a great detoxing if you do it long enough. If you can't do it, fantastic.
0: Yeah, there was at the Functional Medicine Conference, I think like uh, about three years ago, uh, there was a presentation uh, given by Uh, Dr. Deanna Minnick, who's a friend of ours, PhD researcher, and she was talking about whole body health and was saying still how many of her patients that she was seeing were not flossing. And then that uh, those those sort of little pieces of undigested food and other things that are there uh, creating decay and then inflammation and how so much of that inflammation in the mouth comes to there. So uh, just set the record straight since we're going through all the basics and teaching everybody flossing. What, what's your favorite type of floss, and how often should be pe- people be flossing?
1: You know, I personally like the flat or satin floss because it doesn't shred. Now, this is a personal choice because if you have a very tight contact and you use a uh, floss that shreds, then it becomes tedious. It gets stuck in between the teeth, so someone who doesn't have such a strong contact can get away with it. I personally like the flat floss. However, my floss is fluoride-free. Some people, some flosses do actually have a little fluoride on it, so read read the uh, uh, label. Uh, and the way you want to floss, uh, you'll be surprised and how many people are not trained. I mean, I mean. I myself, as a kid, they gave me a lot of floss, go floss your teeth. No one actually took the time to show to me, or even brushing your teeth. You think you're doing it correctly? No one really taught us how to uh, brush and floss correctly. So next time you're at the dental office, put your ego aside. I don't care if you're 50 year old. Uh, check with your dentist and say, "Hey, listen, can you see if I'm flossing correctly?" Because I challenge my patient. I'm like. Let me let me show you how to floss. And usually they say, oh, I know. I'm like, yeah, okay, then show me. And then when I show them how I want them to floss, they're like, oh, I've I don't I've, I've never been doing it this way. Yeah, because I went to dental school, I learned I don't expect you to on your own know this little trick. So the way you want to floss, you want to make sure once you pass the contact and you hear that little click, your floss should remain on the tooth. So hugs the tooth like a C shape. Almost like when you get out of the shower, You're trying to dry your body with a towel, you wrap your body with a towel, right? The towel is not in the air, it's wrapped against you. So like a C-shape, the floss should always remain on the tooth and you slide it down. You'll be very surprised how easy it becomes to floss because the morphology or the shape of the tooth just guides the floss down the gum line. You want the floss to go a bit below the gum line because that's where the bacteria are hidden and the plaque accumulates and goes missing and the toothbrush doesn't have access to. So the whole idea of the floss is not only to remove plaque buildable food from in between the teeth, but also from under the gum. So we need to carry our floss under the gum. But in order to make sure we are not cutting the gum or we are not causing gum recession or pushing the gum down, you have to make sure the floss is staying on the tooth, is hugging the tooth as it goes down the gum line. Does that make sense?
0: Makes complete sense. And you showed me how. And there's a floss that I really like. It's called Smart Floss. Yeah. And it's just it's very strong. It doesn't break apart, but it's a little it slides into your teeth a little easier. Easier. For uh, for folks who want to check that out. It's on Amazon. Um Dr. Roshan. So much great content here. And, you know, I was just doing an interview that will be released later with a colleague of ours, Dr. Tom O'Brien. And he's uh, one of the world's experts in leaky brain and the brain blood barrier. And one of the things that he was sort of talking about the importance on is that so many of these bacteria and viruses that we get primarily first through the mouth, or people have, you know, a persistent sort of like strep. You know, virus or things. If they remain there, and we don't have good oral health, these start sipping into our bloodstream, and some of them can cross the blood-brain barrier, and you have these viruses that impact your brain health. And and can and there was um, he said that Dr. Dale Bredesen, who was previously at UCLA at the Buck Institute doing research on Alzheimer's, found that a significant number of his patients had an Alzheimer's also had um, hepatitis viruses and other viruses that are there, and oral care plays such a huge role in this. So our brain health and our dental health are so linked, and I appreciate you coming here and breaking it down and, and helping us understand that connection stronger.
1: Thank you for having me. I
0: and if somebody wants to uh, work with your clinic or... Uh, to fly in and, and check you guys out, can you share a little bit more about how they can learn more about you and the clinic and working with your team?
1: Sure. Uh, so you can always contact us either via phone or through online. We do have a website called SerenityDentalCenter.com, or they can always look me up, Rosita Rashtian. Uh, we make it very convenient. People can email us with their questions. Uh, I actually very much like that because that shows when a patient is asking or uh, trying to screen tightly, that means they appreciate what I do. So I don't get offended, and I do have a high level of patience to answer questions, and I do so on a daily basis. Um, So they can always email us. Uh, We do have a new patient forum on our website that they can make appointments right away online, or they can contact us uh, through our office line. I'll be more than happy to help.
0: And for those folks that uh, might be looking to see if they can't travel out here, if they're looking for a dentist that's similar to your training, although you're one of a kind, <laughs> where where can they look? What are no the bias
1: here, right, Drew? No bias.
0: <laughs> where can they look and find? What are some of the du- great directories Good. that are out there? There
1: is an extra, excellent website that they can go to that lists a lot of biological dentists out there. Uh, the name of the website is IAOMT, I myself am part of it, so International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology is a great source to start from. Uh, and as I said, I hope by now people can screen a little bit for themselves, so when you call to make an appointment, don't be shy in terms of asking, can you explain to me a little bit what your style of practice it is, or what protocol do you use for this and that, and if they can kind of answer you uh, well based on some of the hints that I tell you, then that's a good office for you. But if people are confused and they don't know what the heck it is you're talking about, then they're not a biocompatible dentist because we get asked all the time over the phone and we expect that. So I want to encourage that. Screen your dentist before you go and um, educate yourself.
0: Yeah, we're all the CEO of our health, so we have to hire the right people to help us. Have the best possible help we can. Absolutely. Dr. Roshan, thank you again so much for joining us on the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank
1: you so much for having me. Thank you so much.